Good morning to each of you. I'd ask you to please take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, we're actually going to um, begin the final chapter of this wonderful letter of which we have spent, I don't know, the last five months or so in. And uh, in some ways it's sad that it's coming to a close, but in other ways there's, it's exciting to see where we may go from here. But I don't want to put the cart before the horse. We still have probably four or five messages uh, in this letter. The Church of Christ has always been under attack ever since the first century. Uh, The Word of God says through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. This was true for the apostles. This was true throughout figures in church history. And this is true of us as well. These trials often come from outside of the church, those who hate the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, those who hate true disciples of Christ and true followers of the Lamb. Persecution arises because of their enmity with Almighty God, their disdain for the holiness of God, their disdain for anything that is righteous and good, they naturally oppose as being wicked. But also, of course, there is threats from the devil himself. The devil hates the church. The devil prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking somebody to devour. And so Satan himself hates the church. Now we know that God is sovereign over all things, and God is sovereign over what Satan is allowed to do. But there are also threats to the church that arise from within the church. Acts 20 and verse 29, Paul says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And so, not only is there dangers from the enemies of the gospel, there's dangers from the devil himself, but also there's dangers from within the church. And all of these things can shock the stability of the church that is in time and space. Mark it well as we sing in another hymn that we did not sing today, the church will never perish her dear Lord to defend, that the Lord will protect the church. Jesus Christ himself is the head of the church, and so we know nothing will ultimately stamp out the church. John Calvin says that it's the devil's chief device um, in the church to bring disunity and division. And that's our other threat, is a lack of harmony, a lack of true unity that we have one with another. That is a real threat. It's a threat that's occurred many times that Paul's alluded to at least many times in this letter. Back in chapter 1 and verse 28, he says, and don't be alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you in this too from God. He talks about striving together in one mind and in one spirit. In chapter 2 and verse 2, he says, Make my joy complete by what? Being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, one unified purpose. The concern for unity and stability within the church is throughout the New Testament expounded on and amplified. For example, Paul writing to the church in Colossae says, In chapter 2 and verse 5, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the what? The stability of your faith in Christ. He tells us in other places, be on the alert, stand firm in the Spirit, act like men and be strong. Let all 
that you do be done in love. You see, when church unity is lacking, it makes the church somewhat unstable. It's kind of like a, a loose leg on a chair, you know, that's, you know, the three sturdy ones, but one that's loose that could give way at any time. Now, ultimately, I've already stated the church shall never perish and the Lord preserves us. But because of our remaining sin, because of our selfish pursuits, because of the remaining sin that we have deep down inside and our pride and all of this, there can be threats of unity. And we see that in our text today. And so I'd like to read our text, and we're going to read chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 9. We'll be looking at the first three verses today and taking up 4 through 9 next week. So follow along with me as we read. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Judea and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared in my struggle for the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your spirit, your gentle spirit, be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence in anything worthy of praise... Dwell on these things, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your day, the Lord's day, that we can set this day aside for corporate worship, to come together to hear from you. And Lord, we pray that by the Holy Spirit, you might speak from heaven through your word this day. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to examine our own hearts to see if there be any any seeds of discord or, or disunity, Lord, and that we would repudiate those and that we would strive for the bond of peace and unity of the Spirit amongst the brethren. Lord, we pray for any who are outside of Christ, who who lack that peace even with the God who has created them, that today you might bring peace to them. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, by, the, by way of review, in chapter 3, we saw a lot. Paul is talking about what he used to put his confidence in as far as how he, would, he, saw, he thought that his, his good standing before God, and it was all of his pedigree, all of his accomplishments that he put trust in. But then he says in verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for Christ's sake. He emphasizes that, restates it several ways, and in several different ways. In verse 9, for example, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. 
What Paul has learned is that all of his religious endeavors, all of his, his, his Hebrew heritage, and all of that that he put all of his stock into, he now throws into the liability column and says, that's not going to help me get anywhere. I count all that but rubbish because he realizes his only standing before God is what we would call an alien righteousness. A righteousness that comes from another. A righteousness that you cannot derive from yourself and from your own good works. It's a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. To put it another way, it's being justified by faith alone. The glorious doctrine that we love and we cling to. So Paul goes on and he talks about uh, various examples and, and being good examples. He gives bad examples. And For example, in verse 18... He talks about, verse 19, those whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. He says, their end is destruction. But then he says, essentially, in verse 17, join in following my example and observe others who actually walk in this same way and follow their example. And so Paul sets before them two examples. He contrasts these ones whose end is destruction to those of us who are in Christ, when he says, for our citizenship is in heaven. It's as good as done. We have been sanctified. We will be glorified. Citizenship, of course, even in the U.S., you have to attach yourself to the U.S. Constitution. Well, citizenship in heaven means you attach yourself to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. And so Paul goes on to develop this, that we await him, the Savior. We await him eagerly. We know that our body will be transformed. We know that we'll be conformed into the image of Christ perfectly in that day. All of that is motivation to press on, as he says in the middle of chapter 3, towards the goal of the upward call of Christ. Now Paul, as it were, concludes, I think, the main body of the letter, chapters 1 to 3. Now he's kind of at the end, and he's, he's going he's to do rapid-fire several commands and imperatives that I, I want these people to at least remember these things. And so, in his concluding remarks, as we would call it, through verse 1 to 9, it is packed full of many practical exhortations. In fact, Paul picks up and repeats many of the themes that we've already seen in this letter, if you've been here um, for some time. Of course, he uses the term beloved twice in verse 1 here. He's already used that. He brings up the idea, my brethren, whom I long for, that, that term of a, a, a endearment and affection and deep longing. He's brought that up twice before already in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Of course, joy has permeated the whole letter, right? Remember, that's a primary theme, rejoicing and joy. He's already brought up the idea of standing firm, that military analogy by your feet being rooted so that you're not wavering and that you're ready to stand strong. And then, of course, the gospel. The gospel way back in chapter 1 and verse 5. Take a look at it. He's, he's writing to these people who he has this deep affection for, the church at Philippi, in view of your participation, that is your fellowship, in the gospel from the first day until now. He says in verse 7, similar things. And then down in verse 12, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. 
everything revolves around the progress, the advancement of the gospel, the exaltation of Jesus Christ, which he described very eloquently in chapter 2 for us. And so today in our text, we'll look at three of these imperatives, to stand firm, to live in harmony, and then the exhortation to the true companion to help these women who are in this disagreement. Next week, we'll see exhortations of to rejoice, to not be anxious, to pray, and to dwell on righteous things. So again, just to point out, this letter is one of Paul's most personal letters. He uses the first person often. Even in our text today, I want you to look at the I, the I, or the we's, the first person. It's very personal for Paul. So we're going to look at this under two simple points. Verse 1, stand firm. And verses 2 and 3, maintain unity. And you say, well, wait a minute, isn't that the leader's job to maintain unity in the church? No, it's, if you're a member of this church, it's your job as well. It is a corporate effort, as it were, just as standing firm is. So first of all, stand firm, brothers and sisters. Again, I've already pointed out the idea that this is a military term. It's the idea of feet firmly planted, of not being easily swayed by the winds and by the various things that would come along. Now, I want you to notice in verse 1, Paul uses five key terms of affection towards this church at Philippi. Um, Of course, he begins with therefore or so then. It's similar to chapter 2 and verse 12. But he expresses his great joy and his warm affection for this church. The first one he uses is brethren. Of course, we use that a lot. When I write emails to the church, sometimes dear family or sometimes brethren, right? Uh, the more staunch reformed brethren, you know, it's right, brothers and sisters is too modern or something. But, um, but the idea is, is it literally means one who is of the same blood, okay? And so, um, so why do we use that term? One that is of the same womb, uh, quite literally. Well, it's used metaphorically throughout the scriptures, of course, um, of brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, the blood of Jesus Christ binds us closer together than any DNA of any blood type and of any family. It binds us together closer than any blood relative. But then he uses the term beloved with a love that is deep-seated, a self-sacrificing, a thorough, intelligent, well-thought-out love, a love that is purposeful, beloved, a love which the entire personality takes part. It's something that is prized and valued. And look look in the text here. Therefore, my beloved brethren. And then at the end, he says, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. He repeats that. Now, why does the Bible repeat things? Remember our first song? Those of you who are here on time. Holy, holy, holy. Why can't we just say holy? Well, we can but the Bible uses repetition for emphasis, okay? And so God is altogether holy, holier than anything else of, of all of God's attributes. It doesn't say love, love, love. It's holy, holy, holy. That's what we need to remember. And so when the Bible uses repetition, it's for emphasis. And so Paul here is, is pointing out the fact that, that these are truly, dearly beloved brethren of his. He wants to magnify the depth of his affection, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. But then look next, he says, whom I long to see 
whom I long to see. Paul longs to see this church again. Remember we said he's probably planted it 10 to 12 years previous. It's been some time. We have some indication that there's been some additional visits. But of course, now, where's he at? He's under house arrest, right? He's chained to a Roman guard. He doesn't have the freedom to go and visit them as he would like. And so he longs to see them. Chapter 2 and verse 26, the same word is used here except for, it's used of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. That's that term, that longing. It's a deep-seated, warm affection and a true, unhypocritical longing for something. But then Paul mentions my joy and my crown. My joy and my crown. Joy, of course, has been a theme throughout this letter. And, and, and what, have we, what have we said again and again? That the, for Paul... Joy did not revolve around outward circumstances like the pay raise or moving into the bigger house or the new car or anything like that. It revolved around his identity with Christ. It revolved around knowing that that he is just a pilgrim in this world and that, that where he's going is somewhere far different. He can find joy even in difficult circumstances. He's under a chain and under house arrest in Rome. But he says, my joy. That whole idea and theme of rejoicing has been like the scarlet thread that has been woven through the tapestry of this letter. It's repeated again and again. I think it's 14 times. I didn't recount it before today's sermon. But it's a repeated theme. And again, repetition we're to take note of. Now, the idea of my joy and crown seems to communicate something, and many take this up, of pointing to the future On that great day of reckoning, the Philippians will be his joy and his crown. And there's some evidence to take it that way. There's a parallel passage in 1 Thessalonians 2 that says, uh, when Paul says, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? And so this whole idea, this eschatological aspect of, that this church is, is his joy and his crown on that great day of reckoning when Jesus will return and come back. But note also that Paul rejoices over them in the present. He's so delighted to hear the good reports from Epaphroditus, to hear the good reports that he's heard, and, and, and his heart is encouraged, and he truly is rejoicing in his present tense even. And so, Paul looks forward to that day of Christ as well. Now, the word that's used for crown, there's a few words in the Greek. It's not diadem, the, 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 the sign of sovereignty, but it's Stephanus, which is that wreath that was given to those athletic competitors, um, often made of wild olive branches or pine and laurel or, or whatever. Uh, to, it was given to a winner of a contest, but also the word was used, a recognition of winners, of, of, uh, besides winners of competitions, awarding of, of significance of appreciation. Kind of like we would give a plaque to, I'm not going to name any names, but <laughs> somebody that for their excellent service, you know, uh, 
within the church or something or in your workplace. And so the word could be used as, uh, that way as well. But certainly it, it has in view, at least for part of it, this eternal reward, this crown of eternal hope. And Paul alludes to this very thing in 1 Corinthians 9 where he talks about running in this race. And he says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. As the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul demonstrates that the price for which he runs is not an individual achievement or something that is perishable, but it is the redemption of the souls of the church of Christ as a whole. And so after these five terms, so affectionate terms here, it, comes, it says, in this way, stand firm. That's the main verb um, in this, and it's an imperative. That's the main verb in our text today, to stand firm. They've been exhorted to imitate his example just a few verses earlier. They've been exhorted to imitate others who are setting forth a good and a godly example. Follow that example. Remember, Paul writes to Corinth, follow my example to the degree that I follow Christ. Follow that example. So the question uh, that's kind of, there's the commentators wrestle with here is, does chapter 4, verse 1 really go with what's preceded? And oftentimes you'll see that, like even in my Bible, verse 2 is bolded as though it's a new thought. Or does it sort of go with what follows? And you can see which direction I've taken it. I think it more sets the tone for verses 1 through 9. But there is an, certainly um, an aspect of truth to where the exhortation flows back into the realities of which he's just set forth that our citizenship is in heaven, that we're to resist those poor examples that um, join in following his example, and in doing so, you are to what? Stand firm. Don't waver. Don't waver in any way, shape, or form. But also, it serves the very strong hinge to what follows. Yes, in light of those things, that's true, but we're to stand firm as we live in harmony as we rejoice, as we take everything to the Lord in prayer, all of that that follows is connected as well. So brethren, to put it very simply, don't be easily moved. When the winds of the new fad come down the pike, you know, the 40 days of purpose, or the you know, 10 days of this, or the prayer of Jabez, or the prayer of Jonah, or whatever, don't go, oh, there's new truth that's been revealed. I've got to run after that. Take all of that through, you know, put it through the grid of Scripture. And and if there's an imbalance and it seems imbalanced, it probably is. Don't be moved easily. The ground will shake. You live in Southern California, you will feel it eventually. But spiritually speaking, there are shock waves that come. There are things that come that, that can potentially devastate us. Men falling into sin, events that happen, world events that these things are going to happen, but stand firm. You will be persecuted. Some of us went to the Voice of the Martyrs event yesterday, heard excellent testimonies of men and, and, some, and one woman who actually was persecuted and shared their, their, their testimonies. You're going to be bullied. You're going to be treated harshly. Yes, you live in a fallen world. You take the name of Christ. Expect it. 
but stand firm. Don't be easily moved. Pressures will come around you. You'll want to give up at certain points. You'll want to begin to vacillate with certain doctrines as as the whole tide of the world tends to be moving down with a certain doctrine. Don't compromise what you know the Bible teaches as clear. You'll be tempted to waver at times of weakness. Stand firm. Don't be displaced. Enemies will seek to plow you over as though it's a well-orchestrated effort. You may even have bad footing and be knocked down, but what does it say? The righteous man, what? Gets up again, right? Seven times. Stand firm. And how are you to stand firm? Well, wait a minute. You're telling me to stand firm. I'm weak. I'm weak in and of myself. Well, look at what Paul says. Stand firm in the Lord. That's where our firmness comes. That's where our sure footing comes. It's from standing in the Lord. Standing in the Lord, standing on His Word, standing on the promises, and, and, and that's where, our, where we can stand firm. But secondly, and all this is just sort of a, a preface, I think, to getting to verses 2 and 3, maintain unity, brethren, at all costs. Maintain unity. After expressing his tender love for them, he addresses this issue of reconciliation. Now, this could hear, hit our ears a little odd. Now, look at it again. I urge Eudia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. This is a publicly read, read letter to the church. I mean, it's kind of unusual that names are called out, you know, for something like this. In fact, our 21st century mindset, it's kind of like, well, that's rude. See, that's evidence that this is like we can't take everything Paul says and can't follow his example. No, we wouldn't say that. But what was the issue? The issue appeared to be some type of important disagreement related to kingdom work. What Paul does here, he says it twice. In my version, it's translated, I urge, I urge. It could be, I plead, I plead. Um, I beg, I beg, some versions said, said I, I believe. But it's parakaleo. It's a common word for encouragement. It literally means to come alongside. When you're encouraging a brother alongside him, you're putting your arm around him. You're not blasting him out of the water. You're not admonishing him without any love. You're alongside. You're giving mutual encouragement. And so that's, that's the word that is used here, a very common word here. And he repeats it. Because it's the picture of as though he was exhorting each woman face to face. Okay? He's not going to say, I urge, and then also you. No, he says the same exact word directed to both women. It's pretty unusual that he would repeat the same verb like that. Because grammatically, it's not necessary. But he does that to point out to them that he's exhorting both of them face to face. Now, Paul has used similar language in certain circumstances as well. Remember Onesimus in the book of Philemon? Philemon 9, he says, or 8 and 9, I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. And so that word appeal is that word, come alongside, I'd rather appeal to you as a brother, For Onesimus, who ran away as a slave, has gotten converted and now is coming back to make things right. Welcome him back. 
They were probably, who were these women? They were probably active members in the church. In fact, I'm convinced they were. They were well-known to all the church. Paul wouldn't just name names of somebody that lived down the block or around the corner. These were women who were well-known in the church. You say, oh, well, were there women elders and deacons in the church? No, I don't see that. I don't, the Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, the Bible teaches that that is unbiblical. But there's something to note that as Paul moves his missionary journeys to Macedonia in Acts 16 and Acts 17, the women, the Gentile women, actually um, have a, a, a prominent role. Let me just uh, read for you uh, in Thessalonica, Acts 17.4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. Later in Berea, Acts 17.12, eight verses later, many of them believed with a number of the prominent Greek women and men. And so, too, the first convert in Philippi was who? Lydia. Okay? So, women had a a prominent role. They provided, they probably opened their homes for house churches. They provided hospitality. The Bible tells us that Paul stayed in Lydia's house while he was there in Philippi on this first trip. She extended hospitality. So, there was some conflict that arose between them. And we, we have to get the idea that these were cantankerous old women who gossiped and were terrible examples. I don't think that's the case. I think there was a righteous disagreement that they were trying to work out. And so Paul, and this is kind of gnawing at Paul, just like, and you probably won't understand this, but Steve will and others who have been in pastoral ministry or long for pastoral ministry, disunity kind of eats at you like a cancer. And Oh, Lord, that you would give unity is the way you would have it. And, and so Paul, you know, far, far away as he hears that this disagreement continues, feels like he has to address it. Paul, of course, has no problem calling names out when there's heresy involved. Remember uh, uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus? He called them out um, on their insistence that the resurrection had already happened. Also, remember Paul's fellow worker, Demas. He says he's become a lover of this world, and he's left the faith. John, John also um, speaks of a leader that has been given to pride and self-exaltation. Diotrephes in 3 John, he calls him out. He says, be warned and flee from such men as these. Now, when the Bible speaks of church unity, it speaks of unity not at the expense of truth, but as the basis for it. In other words, I don't want anybody to take away the wrong idea. Well, you know, why can't we just team up with the other, you know, mainline churches and feed the poor and with groups that deny the deity of Christ and just, you know, have some social uh, you know, locking arm in arm for some social events. Well, no, I, I don't think the Bible would encourage us to do that. In fact, I know it wouldn't. You can't put on a picture of, we believe in the Holy Trinity and the deity of Christ. We believe in the infallibility of the Holy Scriptures. And you can't keep up with a group that says, well, we believe in the Bible and other books and these kinds of things. We don't believe Jesus is God. You're communicating a mixed, blurred message. Amen? So you can't do that. So the, 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 so the Bible does not speak at unity at the cost of truth. 
Truth is the very basis of our unity, and that's why in any one congregation we can have such a sweet unity. First and foremost, because very few of us are blood brothers and sisters, right? But because we are brethren, that is, we are in Christ. That's the first and primary way. Look look at our church, very diverse, many different nationalities represented. We can have unity because it's founded on who Christ is and on the truth of the Word of God. So again, this, this seems odd for Paul to call out these two women. It would be like Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Seminary, writing a letter uh, to me that would be publicly read at the church, and as I'm reading it, your name came up along with somebody else because something wasn't worked out, and somehow he found out about that, and, and, and it needed to be addressed. <laughs> well, Paul's public admonition, I believe, is um, one proof that these women were mature. Paul understood that discord and disunity could be crippling to the church. It could send the wrong message to a lost and dying world. Even if doctrine is sound, disunity can rob the church of its power and its effectiveness in this world. It destroys its testimony to the world. And you can imagine if there was just all these quarrels and fighting going on and and you were maybe part of that and you would go and talk to your neighbors and gossip about that, others that would look on would say, something's wrong with that church. There doesn't seem to be a love for the brethren. doesn't seem to be a unity. So what does Paul tell these women to do? See the word translated, live in harmony with the Lord, or to think the same way is another way to uh, translate it. This is that word that we've seen so many times, ten times, which is the idea, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This attitude, this frame of thinking, we saw it even last week in our text, that's what we are to have to have this attitude, to think in the same way, to live in harmony. So they must think in the same way, in the same direction, with the same aim and the same goal and view. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that there be no divisions among you. Paul may have already been laying the groundwork for addressing this because he's, as I said, he's already kind of been building a case moving towards it. And then the emphasis on unity, which is achieved through humility in early in chapter 2. There's all kinds of speculation. I won't bore you with all the different, well, what was really the disagreement about? Paul doesn't tell us. I don't think we're supposed to know. And so I'm not even going to mention any of them. You can Google it and read through the, uh, the charade if you want. But... There was a disagreement, and it was probably based on um, the gospel in in light of what Paul says that we're going to look at in a minute. But again, notice what he says, live in harmony, and remember how we're to stand firm? It's what? In the Lord. Okay, say it with me. Stand firm in the Lord. Okay, so these women are to live in harmony in the Lord the same way. And so that's what they are called to do for the sake of the Lord, in submission to the Lord, recognizing that He is Lord, that it's unity between the two. It reached this uh, point to where most of the church uh, was aware of it. And so now the urgency of this matter is shown by Paul in verse 3. Look at what he says. Indeed, true companion... Oh, by the way, yeah, I'll come back to that. Indeed, true companion, I ask you to help these women. 
help these women. So who is the true companion? There's all kinds of speculation about that. Is it Timothy? Is it Silas? I don't think so, because I think they're with him, right? Um, So it's not them. Some think that it was Luke. Um, The the reality is we just do not know. But Paul's petition uh, goes to a level of asking another party to assist. Remember, it says in 1 Corinthians 12, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And so he's calling on a true companion, a true comrade to come alongside and to assist. Now, the, the, the words that are translated true companion only occur here, and it's literally yoke fellow. It's like two oxen pulling the same load, okay? That's literally what it means. And so he's, he's, Paul is calling this particular person a yoke fellow. Also, the way the word is, is phrased, there are some that have said, no, it's, he's actually calling out a certain name because he mentions Clement. In this verse, he's mentioned the two women, and so this is supposed to be a proper name, but nowhere, even in extra-biblical literature, even to this day, has there been found a proper name with this particular Greek word. So I dismiss that as well. But I'm convinced that whoever it was, he was a co-worker in the apostolic mission along with Paul, and this person was well-known to the church. He gives a command, help them, come alongside them. It's, it's a word that actually can be used in its active sense to take custody of. For example, when Jesus was seized in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, or when the large fish, uh, huge catch of fish, uh, when they are singling to the other ship, Um, Also, Peter's arrest in Acts 12, there's a seizing or a seizing of the catch, but here it's in the middle voice, and Paul's companion is called on to give assistance to the women in reconciling their differences. And even the very use of this verb might indicate that they had already begun the process of reconciliation and then just needed some assistance and some help, a third party, which is often good. That's why we believe in biblical counseling here. We believe that that's very vital. There's going to be times when husbands and wives or two members of the church are at odds and they need a third party, an objective third party, to come in uh, to help give the sounding and the direction from the Word of God. And so he asked them, my true companion, I ask you also to help these women. And then he describes these women, who, and the whole rest is a clause that modifies who. And notice what he says here first. And this is really the basis of the reason for asking of this help. Who have shared in my struggle in the cause of the gospel. These weren't just old gossips that sat on the back row that just got together and had tea together and gossiped the whole time. Like the one lady in, um, oh, never mind, I can't think of the name. Anna Green Gables, uh, you know, just a a, a full-time gossip, right? Some people will get that. Um, It's not like that at all. These are women who shared in the struggle, and this word is they labored, they rolled up their sleeves, they assisted, they were with Paul, advancing the gospel. In whatever ways that they were helping, they were, as it were, on the front lines. They shared in this struggle, and even this word is the idea of an athletic metaphor here, to contend, to struggle with, to labor alongside. Uh, Revelation 2, 3, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. 
Again, these themes of fellowship and participation, remember from the very beginning of the letter, your participation in the gospel, your fellowship in the gospel, koinonia, another theme throughout this book here. And here again, they've shared together with me in my struggle. And so he's emphasizing that. So let me ask you, are you known as a peacemaker? So let me, let me put it to you just directly. If a person comes to you during the break and starts gossiping about another person, have you heard what so-and-so, what happened with so-and-so this last week? And if it begins to become on a level, I wonder if that person would be sharing what they're sharing if that person were standing right here. If it comes to that level, what do you have a responsibility to do? To not listen to it, okay? He, go, he who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a gossip. And when there are two people who are at odds, encourage reconciliation. Have you talked to that person? It's amazing how often I'll hear, well, not yet. I'm talking to everybody else about it first, and then I'll get to get around to them. No, go directly to that person. Keep short accounts so that you might glorify God. And as we read in Romans, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Some of you know the work, The Life of God and the Soul of Man, written by Henry Scrugel in the late 17th century. And there's a Bishop Burnett who wrote the preface to a republication of that work. Actually, I think it was the first edition. And he says this, and this is, this is striking. It's a rather lengthy quote. There is scarce a more unaccountable thing to be imagined than to see a company of men professing a religion one great and main precept of mutual love and forbearance and gentleness of spirit, compassion of all sorts of persons, and agreeing in all essential parts of doctrine, and differing only in just one small area, a more disputable thing, yet maintaining those differences with zeal so disproportional to the value of them, and the prosecuting of all that disagree from them with all possible violence, or if they want means to use outward force with all bitterness of spirit. Do you see what's, what, what he's trying to communicate here? Is that there, there are some who can agree on 98% of doctrine, but there's this 2% that is, and it's not a defining, you know, 2% deity of Christ. Of course, it's not that. It's something that is so minor that oh, suddenly we profess all this mutual love and accepting one another and all that, but oh, I'm going to fight tooth and nail over that 1% or 2%. Could be something is, anyway, I'm not going to give examples, but <clears throat> you get the idea. And there's a lot of that going on in these days. Even Reformed Baptists, there's so many different splinter groups and more splinter groups. And, okay, now we've got to fight over this one thing right here. And if, whoever doesn't agree needs to go over here. Whoever agrees goes over here. And they keep fracturing themselves. And it's a very grievous thing in light of the totality of the teaching of Scripture and the call to unity. I'm not saying we should unify and and discard the truth. I've already made that very, very clear. But when it comes to those secondary things, it's not worth continually dividing over. We must hasten on. Are you a true fellow worker in the cause of the gospel? Look what he says. 
They've shared in my struggle for the cause of the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. So he's calling them a fellow worker along with Clement and the rest of them. Clement we know nothing about. His name's Latin. Um, We know that he's honored here and being mentioned as a fellow worker. The picture that Paul is painting is, is one of like Romans 16 where he just goes through and talks about all these Tryphena and Tryphosis and Phoebe and Priscillus and Aquila. They're fellow workers. They were right there with me on the front lines. They were well respected. They were mighty. Paul's reminded of all his fellow, rest of the fellow workers. And then finally he says, look what he says at the end, whose names are written in the book of life. Is your name written in the book of life? What does it mean to have your name written in the book of life? Is there a literal book with a permanent marker, or is it in pencil? Does it mean you can go in the book and be erased out of the book and be added back to the book? What does it mean? Well, these fellow workers, of course, are mentioned, and they have something in common, that their names are mentioned in the book of life. That whole terminology, it, it was a reference to the old covenant people of God. Um, In Daniel 12, we saw Moses in our scripture reading pray that the Lord would forgive the children of Israel and not blot them out of the book of life after their idolatry. But the imagery is developed into those who labor and whose names are written in heaven. Luke 10, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Hebrews 12, to the general assembly, rejoice that your names are, sorry, in the general assembly, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. This figurative language makes its way to revelation and it's repeated again and again. Those who overcome will be clothed with white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life. It's spoken of of those who do not worship the beasts in Revelation 13 as well. At the end of the day, we know, as it says in 2 Timothy, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having the seal, the Lord knows who those who are his. Two points of quick application as we end. First of all, negatively, don't ever compromise doctrine for the sake of unity. I think I've made that clear. Don't compromise doctrine for the sake of unity. One of the things this text shows us is that even those who are seasoned and have been in the faith for some time and that are older Christians and been in the faith for a while can have real conflict. The the question boils down to how do you deal with that conflict? Do we really take heed what it says in Ephesians 4, being diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit by the bond of peace? That's an exhortation to all, each one in the church. So do not compromise doctrine. Be quick, quick to resolve any conflicts that might take place. What are some areas where you might be tempted to compromise doctrine? Maybe in the workplace? Somebody's embracing an admirate theology of some sort. Maybe in the school. Um, Those of you in high school or or in college, you don't want to offend, even though your friend is denying the Trinity and so forth. Well, boy, I can't tell them that I really, I do believe in the deity of Christ. Don't compromise doctrine. Speak the truth. Speak it in love, but speak the truth. Those of you in the military, be another example, or even just your neighbors. 
You find out over time what they really believe, don't you? And to be able to look for creative opportunities to bring the truth to bear. But positively, we should all strive to be peacemakers. It's one of the Beatitudes, isn't it? We are to be peacemakers, strive for the visible unity of the church without sacrificing truth. Think of how many words you speak each day. Think of the thousands of words that most of you speak each day. And many times we can offend others with careless words. Words can leave scars, scars that can last a lifetime. Words can also give a soothing balm that can encourage and give strength for months or years or even a lifetime. Words are something that are very, very powerful. Think of the last time you came here, um, first time visitors excluded, but the last time you came here and something that was said at some point, maybe before the service, maybe after the service, somehow was taken the wrong way and you went home and you just stewed about that. You didn't talk to that person. You were offended. This ought not to be. We ought to be clear and say, did you mean to say that? I, I, you know, I want to be sure I'm understanding what you're saying. And be clear so that you're not um, thinking the wrong thing. We're called to think the best as well. Oftentimes, it's simple misunderstandings. We need to remember that a gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word does what? Stirs up strife. It's like sticking a, a stick in a beehive, you know, and jabbing it a few times. You're going to have some strife. And then also, to be a good listener in conflict, he who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. Some of us, many of us, probably all of us, have said things that we've regretted at some point in our life. You can never take that back. So may we do as the psalmist to put a guard over our lips and to be, as Paul urges believers to be, to be those who have a zeal for the unity and the purity of the church in the Lord for Christ's sake. Amen. If you're outside of Christ, come to him today. Come to him. It says, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you come to him, you will know that you indeed were chosen to come to him. If you resist, then you have reason to question that. And so if you're outside of Christ, flee to Christ today. Let us pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for the practical teaching from your word from Philippians 4. And Lord, we thank you for the exhortations that we have heard. And Lord, make us those who not only stand firm individually, but Lord, those who would stand firm together, locked arm in arm as a church, as he said earlier in the letter, in one mind and in one soul, uh, and with one purpose. And Lord, we want to be those who advance the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be those who see the gospel in its power, humbling wretched sinners to their knees, that they would beg for salvation and be saved by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to keep short accounts. And maybe even now, as as I've been speaking and as I'm praying, maybe there is something that has come to mind, and several, that needs clarified, that needs to be dealt with. A seeking of forgiveness, a granting of forgiveness. Lord, that is healthy, and we pray that you would move in each heart here. Lord, we thank you for this time around your word. In Jesus' precious name, amen.